trying to lead by finding ways to meet the need in order to fulfill our mission, which, which is to bring broadband into these rural areas that, frankly, have been passed by. Hello, this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Since 2000, NOAAnet has served Washington State with its open access wholesale fiber network. To date, the network consists of almost 2,000 miles in both metro and rural areas. This week, Chris interviews Dave Spencer, Chief Operating Officer for NOAAnet. Among other topics, Dave gives us the history of NOAAnet, discusses their business model, and describes the many ways the network has enhanced life in rural Washington. We encourage you to support these commercial-free podcasts with a contribution in any amount at ILSR.org or MuniNetworks.org. Thanks in advance for your donation. Now here are Chris and Dave Spencer. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm interviewing Dave Spencer, the Chief Operating Officer of NOAAnet. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So, Dave, we're talking about NOAAnet, which is located in Washington, and it seems to be most of Washington State, in fact. Why don't you tell us what NOAA stands for and, and what you do? NOAAnet stands for Northwest Open Access Network. We were formed back in 2000 in response to the dot-com and telecom boom passing us by in rural areas of Washington were formed by the municipal corporations, public utility districts that were running utilities in rural towns in uh, Washington State, and were eyewitnesses at a ringside seat to getting passed by on the uh, digital divide here, and decided to do something about it. So we, you know, created NoAnet to hook up uh, various digital islands, if you will, out there in these rural communities and back home to major metropolitan internet hubs. And it's interesting that you have open access in your name. I think you you were right at the forefront of open access around 2000. Uh, what, is, what does open access mean in the context of NOAAnet? Open access for us was a realization that if we build rural infrastructure that we needed to allow other people to use it, you know, by design. And so, in other words, we didn't have any illusions that the cost of of capital build-outs in rural areas could possibly prevent, if we went in and did it, could possibly prevent others from investing just because of the, you know, severely high cost of, of building broadband in rural areas. And then if we were going to do that, that we'd want to open it up to all comers for a variety of broadband applications, whether they're focused on um, communities, specifically healthcare, education, uh, carrier exchange networks, cell phones, any of that kind of uh, activity, and that this would just be sort of the off-ramps on the information superhighway, as it was called back then. Right, I still like that term. Actually, it's a it's a little bit retro, but I still think it's pretty accurate. <laughs> so, so you've had you've had fifteen years. How far does the network extend now? We uh, originally had extended the network through um, 
the, the middle part of the state and over to the, the eastern edge and, and, and also back on the, uh, you know, uh, Seattle is, is a predominant internet hub, but also Portland and the city of Spokane are, are considered internet hubs in the, in the northwest here. The uh, network has since expanded to have ad drop sites in every county of the state. So it's truly a, a statewide effort, and as a, a nonprofit uh, municipal corporation, if you will, uh, we provide that open access then to all these particular sites around the state, and often in a redundant way. So if there's a failure on one part of the network, it, it self-heals and, and keeps those services up. So at this point, it's... Uh, it's throughout the state and available for economic development, uh, health care, what have you. Just so I think people have a sense of where maybe some of the credit might be due, um, how much was the federal stimulus helpful in helping you to, to expand to every county? If not for the federal stimulus, we would not have expanded, and I doubt anybody else would have. So it was a significant program that landed right in our wheelhouse. As I mentioned, we had a network originally up and running of about uh, 1,800 miles, uh, route miles, and had uh, hit, you know, I would say maybe two-thirds of the counties, half the counties. When the stimulus program came out and the broadband technology opportunities program, BTOP, administered through NTIA, we looked at that and said, shoot, you know, this is right in our wheelhouse, and there are huge swaths of Washington State that are not served uh, or are underserved. And so we put in proposals. We actually won uh, two grants, both in the first round and second round, to essentially build out fiber into these areas and create uh, looped infrastructure that would allow for redundancy. And so the um, the stimulus funds was huge for us. It allowed us to expand our network in every county and add another 1,200 miles to the network. I, I sometimes think that I wish that pretty much every state or, you know, maybe in some areas, regions of states had an organization like NOAAnet that would have been available rather than just sort of passing that money through to the local corporations or, or the big national corporations, um, because I think you have that commitment to open access that uh, a lot of others don't. And when you're putting federal money into something in these rural areas, for all the reasons you said, it's really great to have it uh, be open access. Definitely. And it's open access to those carriers you're, you're referencing. Um, certainly it benefits them and, and benefits the incumbent telecommunication entities. I think what we found with that is it'll, it and probably maybe even more importantly allows us to aggregate demand. So if you think about it, there, there's liable to be a cell tower or two in a rural area that uh, as, the, as the broadband tide continues to come in, and, and, and nobody is saying that the demand for broadband is going down. If anything, it's accelerating that a lot of these communities, you know, were, were stuck with, you know, inferior cell service. You know, there, there may not be coverage or certainly for data service, it, it was uh, not keeping up with demand. Yet, you think about it, a lot of these rural communities can't get on 
the major carrier's radar to upgrade. But having a regional network that is open access and is focused for all comers, private and public alike, then allows these cell towers to be aggregated and, you know, actually put the state of Washington on the map and help attract investment. And so now some of these areas have coverage that really they, they couldn't have dreamed about five years ago. Well, you've already listed some of the different uses of your network in terms of the healthcare and the economic development and connecting the, the schools and things like that. Is there, are there anybody, is there anyone using the network that's surprising? You know, is there something that you just, you love to talk about uh, regarding how your network has benefited the state in ways that people might not expect? Well, that's a good question. There are a number of stories. We've, we've done some uh, interviews out there on economic development. And, you know, I would say that what, what's surprising is the number of people that are putting up businesses in the rural areas that, you know, normally they, they would have had to gone somewhere else. Maybe they grew up in a, in a small town and, and now they've got world-class broadband access and they're forming their uh, digital media companies, their uh, next generated generation application development companies in these rural areas and kind of have the best of both worlds. You know, a lot of outdoor recreation yet, you know, have the ability to really promote their products and services on a global stage. Right. And I think, and then on the other end, you have uh, the, the data centers for some of the more established companies as well, often want to be located in your state because you have access to low cost power. The climate in a, not a, in a lot of the state is conducive to it. Um, you know, I, I assume data centers must be a big part of your business. Well, certainly back in, uh, in 2006, it was a major part of our business. It was back then that we were discovered, if you will, on the global map of great places to site data centers. And at the time, you know, no one had already had fiber into these rural areas, and all of a sudden the rural area became attractive for, uh, as you mentioned, power, land, and then broadband. So sort of the hat trick there coming together to create a, a fertile ground for business development opportunities on the data center front. And, and now, you know, fast forward nine years later, it's remarkable how many data centers are there and how much bandwidth is flowing in and out of these, what otherwise were fields and, you know, an agricultural area in the center part of the state. You know, I, I don't want to pick on, on another state, but I was just thinking, um, if you look at a state like, I think, West Virginia, they have not dissimilar challenges to um, to connecting everyone, right? They've got mountains that get in the way of things, windy roads, um, very rural areas. And yet, if, if I had to guess, I'd say your schools uh, throughout Washington are probably um, connected with much higher capacity networks than, than in a state like West Virginia or in many of the other states that have to deal with those beautiful mountains. Um, you know, you connect a ton of schools, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And going back in time 10 years ago, um, you know, as Nona was, was uh, up and running, many of our public utility districts and uh, municipalities were looking at building the schools as, as 
a, a critical function for um, back then what we were calling bridging the digital divide, you know, what I would call now is a digital inclusion, and prioritized getting fiber out to schools. We also had the benefit of a statewide organization that managed connectivity to schools, you know, at, on a statewide basis. So between, you know, NOANET and the other last mile fiber providers, we've been able to stitch up a network that's essentially run for 10 years now, connecting every school in uh, the school administrative site to the statewide K-20 network that we have in place. And it's been a tremendous success. Of course, now with E-Rate and some of the funding for intra connections, you know, schools connecting to their uh, various campuses and communities and getting the fiber built out there, having the statewide network in place just fuels the fire, if you will, for incredible uh, broadband connectivity. In Colorado, for instance, where I just was, I think in some of these rural communities, people have to pay outrageous sums. I mean, on the order of $100 a megabit, in some cases still, for Internet access for schools. I assume your prices are much more competitive than that. Yes, they are. We've priced our network and the retailers that use it. We're a, we're a wholesale network, so the, the retailers that sell to the state and to schools have priced it comparable to what you could buy in an urban environment. Now, we still have high-cost areas and need to recover costs on that, but across the state, people are enjoying uh, similar price points that they'd have in the metro areas. We've been concerned in the past about state-owned uh, statewide, state-owned and statewide networks, um, because we feel like the state doesn't necessarily act with a community's best um, motives in mind. Um, <laughs> and I'm just sort of curious how you, you're a statewide but locally owned or, you know, your your, mem- your yeah. owners are, are, are rooted in the community. Do you think you act differently than a, than a, state, a state-owned, a statewide enterprise might? I think in some sense you, you could argue that governments getting into the broadband business maybe are a little bureaucratic, may not move fast enough to to meet the needs of the commercial sector, um, you know, those types of arguments. Uh, Can I just, us, I would sort of pause you there for a second and just say that sure. if you want to talk about not moving very fast and not meeting the needs of the commercial sector, you could very well be talking about the big incumbents as well. <laughs> bureaucracy <laughs> bureaucracy knows no public or, or bounds. It's a function of size in my experience, but sorry to cut you off. Touche. <laughs> no, that, that, that makes sense. For us, we, we put a premium on rolling out our network in a, uh, in a way that allows us to rapidly adapt and respond. We have no illusions that we're in a competitive industry that uh, while we could, you know, open up this fantastic network to the world and say, yeah, you know, come on, let's go, that people may not show up, right? And maybe if you build it, they won't come kind of attitude. And so when we opened our doors, we were very much focused on the customer experience, uh, time to, you know, minimizing time to get hooked up, minimizing the cold process. Once we have people up and running, operating reliably, putting a premium on reliability and responsiveness. So 
I'm not sure that, that, that you could say that, you know, the government is worse at that than, let's say, the private sector, based on your point you just made. I think it's more of an attitude, and, and we came in with an attitude of focusing on the customers, problem solving, more of a solution sales uh, approach where we're, we're, we're trying to be the most flexible ones. We're trying to lead by finding ways to meet the need in order to fulfill our mission, which, which is to bring broadband into these rural areas that, frankly, have been passed by. Right. And I, I think I was, because I was making it up as I was going along, my, my question wasn't totally clear. Um, but it, to some extent, as someone who very much is supportive of local governments, um, and, and it's supportive of state and federal governments, but I sort of, I think most highly of local uh, governments, I, I just sort of wonder if you being a entity that's owned by local governments makes you respond differently to local concerns than if you were owned by the state of Washington. Since we have investors that are concerned about um, the community specifically, their their schools where they're sending their kids, the health care that's available, the emergency response that's available, are we uh, sensitive to that in these communities? And the answer is very much so. And of course, we we get it. Uh, and so when we talk to uh, communities that are that are looking at getting into this, and you know what impacts this could have for them. We're um, very much focused on use cases. That is, case studies that have proven that uh, deploying broadband in in specific ways is beneficial to the community and can benefit the community in ways you know maybe that they haven't thought of. And so very much the, in that sense, it's a grassroots buildup. It, it came from the locals that said, hey, uh, we are getting passed by. And if, if our communities are going to have a shot at being economically viable in the future, we've got to do something about broadband access. Right. Well, I think as we're running out of time here and winding the interview down, um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the future of NoahNet. Um, you, you're the kind of guy that's you've been in this industry for a while, and and I'm curious if you see it changing significantly, or if you think it's basically going to be more of the same but on a larger scale. For us, the, the future is evolving on a number of fronts. Uh, NoahNet's reinvented itself a few times over the years. We mentioned the data centers earlier, and then that was a uh, major upgrade in network technology at the time. BTOP obviously had expanded the footprint. For for us now, being in every county and being grassroots focused, we see a compelling need for more and more broadband access. It's it's, you know, the, these communities, the, the, the issue isn't going away. And so on knowing it's from, we're looking at focusing on getting ever larger footprint, ever deeper into the communities, whether it's working with a locally inspired uh, municipal that, that is doing something that needs connections to the outside world, whether it's working with the incumbent telco, the price cap carriers that are nationwide, you know, all hands on deck here. Grant funding, uh, you know, federal funds coming in, tribes. It, you know, as great as the success story is, there are 
is much to do. And also with, you know, the next generation of uh, cell phone traffic, the next generation of platform-based applications, the -the over-the-top movement, uh, making sure we've got a a reliable, redundant platform in place to enable all the -the over-the-top, not only entertainment applications, but for healthcare, for public safety. The list goes on and on. So I just I feel like we got a good uh, toehold, an amazing network in the state, and there is much more left to do uh, to accomplish the mission and vision of NoahNet. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and telling us more about NoahNet. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at CommunityNets. Once again, we want to thank BKFM B-Side for their song, Raise Your Hands, licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening. Have a great day.